Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts, news editor. And I'm Russell Hargrave, senior news reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're sitting down with Gerald Oppenheim, chief executive of the fundraising regulator, about his organisation's new strategy. But first, Andy, we all woke up to news. The country has a brave new leader. All hail Prime Minister Liz Truss. Were you uh, glued to her every word yesterday? Well, of course, like most of the rest of the country. But I think the thing that's troubling me the most is the fact that this is the first Prime Minister that is younger than me in my lifetime. So that always feels a very difficult moment when people younger than you are achieving way more than you. I mean, I've had quite a lot of time to get used to it. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of my dad's joke saying... It's bad enough when policemen start to look younger than you, but when the Pope starts to look quite <laughs> young and virile, that's when you know you've really kind of gone past the point of no return. Um, by the time people hear this, we will have a whole new government, Liz Truss and her team around her, but we already know one person who's going to be the Secretary of State for Culture, and that's the minister who will have responsibility for our third sector. Um, Nadine Dorries has gone. She quit earlier in the week. She's promised to go back to writing her many books um, and then probably the House of Lords. I did see a slightly unkind tweet suggesting that charity shops might be bracing themselves for the arrival of more of Nadine Dorries' <laughs> books being passed down the chain to them. Um, but uh, that's where our former Secretary of State is off. And Who's she's being replaced by Michelle Donnellan. She's the MP for Chippenham, but she might be best known for spending less than two days as Education Secretary because she was appointed and then almost immediately quit in protest at the man who had appointed her, Boris Johnson, which then obviously precipitated this mass resignation that led to his departure. So, Russell, my question for you this morning is, have you ever given up on anything in less than 48 hours? Um, If I'm honest, and this has a good charity link... Of course I have. Um, for example, <laughs> I went to the Scouts once, uh, to the local Scout group. It was about 1994, I would imagine. I remember it was very wet. It was very cold. It was late at night. My parents had been getting on at me that I should kind of go out and do this sort of thing because, I don't know, it was going to kind of improve my spirit and it was going to build my character or whatever it is the Scouts are supposed to do. And I went for one night. We crawled around on the floor playing football with our hands. That's what I remember was the kind of thing that was set up. And I immediately pledged I'm never, ever going to go and do this again. That doesn't sound like football, really. Um, well, no, it was sort of crawling around on your belly hand football. Well, you might as well actually go outside and kick a ball around, which I did anyway and which I would have rather loved. So nothing against Matt Hyde, who is the chief executive of the Scouts and is generally kind of very, very well considered <laughs> the figure in the sector, and rightly so. But I'm afraid, Matt, that evening was pointless, made me miserable, and I decided that I would never, ever um, do it again. Um, Andy, you must have given up on some stuff. What about you? Oh, I've given up on plenty of things. So I think the thing that springs to mind is so when my wife and I had our first child, mm-hmm. I probably should say diplomatically, it was a difficult labour. Okay. Poor Sarah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and consequently, my wife and my son ended up staying in hospital for several days after he was born, which was great because there were nurses there and they were all helping mm-hmm. and they could help with the baby and I could kind of pop in when I wanted to and say, hi, how's it going? Oh, hello, little boy. And that was good. And But then you get sent home. And you say, oh, oh, we're going home. This is really exciting. And then you take the baby in. Oh, we're taking the baby home yeah. for the first time when you're home. And you get in, you put the kettle on. Now what? 
you're like, what do we do with this person? Like, are we supposed to be putting him to sleep? Do we feed him? Do we change him? Do we start reading him the Iliad? I don't know. What, what do you do with little children? You just have no idea. And it felt like we were totally un- unprepared. And consequently, we had virtually no sleep that night because mm. Ben was just awake the whole time and consequently so were we. So there was a very popular thing at the time called the Contented Little Baby Book by a woman called Gina Ford who was okay. like this kind of uber nanny who had uh, come up with this idea of you can get your baby into a routine in about four weeks and then you'll have unbroken nights and everything will be blissful again. We tried this, but because it's basically set around a very strict routine. So there are all times of when you're supposed to be doing things, how long the baby. Mm. It even tells the mum to have, oh, 8.12, have a glass of water and a slice of toast. (laughs) I mean, it's very uh, prescriptive. We tried this for like about 24 hours and... we were basically in a situation where he's awake, he should be asleep, he should be feeding, but he's not hungry. He's asleep and he should be awake. <laughs> he's not supposed to be awake for another 12 minutes. And oh, it was just so stressful that we swiftly canned that idea. And uh, that was the end of it. Emily and I had a little bit of baby chat last week. Oh, Our yes. colleague Emily Burt is expecting her first little one very soon. Um, and it would have become apparent very quickly to listeners that this is not an area that I have any expertise <laughs> in at all. But I do think what you're describing, it does sound like I'm not sure how much you can just kind of dracoon a child that is newborn into doing anything you want it to, right? No. It'll just kind of lie there when it does and start crying and fall over when it wants to like can you control that in the slightest well i mean i think there are some things you can do but it it felt like for us i mean and there are loads of people who have found this very effective and they must be far more ordered people than than i which is not that difficult let's face it but uh, i mean for us it was just too restrictive and actually we took some of the elements of it but we felt like it was more to do with us kind of feeling our way with the new baby and working each other out really rather than um following this strict routine Anyway, should we get on with the main part of the episode? Come on, let's go. The fundraising regulator was launched in 2016 in response to a series of media scandals that exposed the aggressive fundraising techniques used by some charities. The new organisation took over responsibility for the code of fundraising practice and set up the Fundraising Preference Service, which allows people to block communication from selected charities. Last week, the regulator released its strategy for the next five years, which includes plans for the code of conduct, how it will work with the sector, the regulator's own financial future, and how it will be funded. And we are joined by Gerald Oppenheim, Chief Executive of the Fundraising Regulator, who will talk us through some of these plans. Hi, Gerald. How are you? Hello, Russ. I'm fine, thanks. Good to see you. You too. Welcome to the pod. Um, I mean, just by way of kicking off, what what are the broad aims of this new strategy? What are you hoping for in the next five years? We've had uh, the last five or six years in which we were setting ourselves up as a new body, getting our systems and processes in place, making sure that we could regulate in a way that was sensible and proportionate and worked obviously recruiting our staff team as well and and settling in with the board and its committees. So we'd got to the point uh, through the pandemic where we had 
that very operational strategic plan to get us through our first period, which we extended through the pandemic. And then as we began to come out of it, we started to look at, well, what are the ambitions for us over the next five-year period uh, from September 2022 to uh, that point in 2027? And started to think about how how do we do things? How can we do more? How can we make it better and improve it within the resources that we've got, but also acknowledging that some of what we would like to do uh, and arguably should do will come at a cost, which might mean that we had to increase the the take from our levy in future years. So it's a combination of all of that. And I think in particular, wanting to move ourselves from being a regulator that for perfectly good and understandable reasons had been reactive to what was going on in the world of fundraising, in the expressions of concern that we might have from members of the public, in the inquiries that we were getting about fundraising and how to, um, as well as the experience of the pandemic, to try and turn ourselves over the next period into a more outward-facing organisation, also recognising that, of course, what we do is going to continue to be reactive to the issues that others present to us that we may or may not be aware of. We know that one of the things that the regulator is planning to do is to carry out a major review of the code of fundraising practice. Can you talk about what this will entail and what particular aspects of the code that might be in your sites particularly? Well, the code has changed over the years that it's been around from the time that the Institute of Fundraising Uh, before it became chartered, looked after the code, developed it and brought all those individual codes of practice around legacies and face-to-face together in that first document that they produced back in the the early 2000s from memory. Um, And then we inherited it from the uh, Institute when we launched in July 2016. And We moved bit by bit from care and maintenance and amending it when the law changed to make sure that it was up to date to the major piece of work that we did in 2018 to reflect GDPR and the new data rules in it. And then in 2019, when we launched what is the current edition of the code, in plain English and with some of the repetitions and unnecessary links taken out uh, and and slimmed down in that way. What we didn't do in that exercise, other than perhaps at the margins, was look at the content. So this review is going to look at the content of the code. Is it still fit for purpose? Are there things in the code that we really don't need to keep any longer because they either reflect fundraising in a way that it doesn't happen anymore? There's a wonderful bit in there about, you know, don't cold call charitable trusts and foundations. Well, I'm not sure we need yes. that bit anymore. I mean, there may be a clamor, <laughs> there may be a clamor to keep it, in which case we'll obviously listen to what is said to us. But um, you know, there are things like that that have perhaps outlived 
the point of inclusion. There, despite our previous best efforts, there's still some repetitions in there that could usefully be slimmed down and consolidated in one place. Uh, there's always a need, I think, to make sure that the links that we provide in the code to other guidance or the law, where the law references charitable fundraising, are up to date and current. And above all else, uh, are there things missing? Are there things we should enhance? Are there other things we should take out? And then a question, I think, about uh, that, that I think a lot of uh, regulators are considering at the moment is how far you want your code to be a principles-based document that sets out at much higher level the expectations, the behaviours, the values, all of that really good stuff that you need to have in there. And how far do you make it one of those, but also balance that with enough granular detail in there that a fundraiser in a charity or a volunteer fundraiser out in, in the public could turn to it and say, can I actually do that? Or I want to do it this way, is that going to work? And can actually use the document for that purpose. So it's a balancing act because we still need a code in order to judge whether a charity, when we get a complaint, has breached the code or not. And we need to be able to do that in a way that draws both on the values and the principles that underpin the code, as well as the actuality of what's happened against a, a particular standard. Starting in October, we'll embark on what will be quite a long exercise, stretching over at least 18 months, probably up to two years, no more than that, I hope, um, where we need to review the code. We need to start, as we're going to do in the autumn, with some engagement with some of the charity networks the Chartered Institute, uh, other regulators, the country councils like NCVO and WCVA, NICVA and so on, our colleagues in Scotland uh, as well who use the code uh, to see what their thoughts are uh, so that we can begin to gather either some actual evidence or some impressionistic anecdotal material that we can then take and put into some proposals for what we think the code might look like in future. And then during 2023, probably after the summer of 23, so a year's time, let's say, timetable's a bit fluid, so it could change, um, we do a consultation on the proposals for 12 weeks and um, see what people think and then obviously you have your time for reflection and adjustment in the light of what you've been told we'll do some probably do some consultation meetings we'll have material on the website so that uh, anybody who just wants to write in their their thoughts can do so and uh, so that really no later than two years time the autumn of 24 we have a new code and when you say a new code, I mean, as we stand at the moment, obviously, it's all going to be subject to consultation and depending yes. on what you hear back from the various organisations that you engage over the process. But are you anticipating it will be almost a 
sort of a ground zero sort of um, rewrite or are you going to start with the code and then sort of amend it from there? How, how sort of radical are you anticipating this could be? Well, it could be very radical. I don't know that it will be, though. Um, we have the code as it as it stands at the moment. And what we do know is that that October 2019 version of the code, the plain English version with its crystal mark, and we don't want to lose that uh, because it makes it an accessible document, which arguably it wasn't always in its previous versions. What we want is a new version of the code that works that is accessible, that reflects fundraising as we know it in the 2020s, that uh, picks up or at least references in some appropriate way developments in fundraising around the, the move to greater use of digital that was going on anyway, but that the pandemic arguably accelerated We've had lots of questions about, is the code going to say anything about cryptocurrency, mm. Bitcoin and all that? Again, we've got to th bottom that out because, you know, if you read the press, you know, cryptocurrency is here to stay mm. and then next week it's bombed yeah. completely <laughs> and people have lost shed loads of money uh, through investing in it. So we don't want to have a code that pins us down to a model of cryptocurrency that will be out of date within you know a week of the code being republished mm. so we've got to think all those logistics through and come up with a document that is useful to us as a regulator to charities that fundraise and their fundraising teams and also to volunteer fundraisers or members of the public who want to support their local charity and one of the other big initiatives for the fundraising regulator is the fundraising preference service, um, which a lot of our listeners will know. And one of the suggestions in the strategy is that the regulator would like to increase the the uptake and the use of, of that service, which is there for all charities. Um, what? How are you hoping to go about kind of getting greater engagement? What's the plan? The the ideas around that we, we've had for a while, which is to get, I suppose, greater support from charities uh, for its use. Now, that works on a number of different levels. There's the very practical day-to-day uh, -day issue, if you like, that uh, somebody goes on to FPS and says, I don't want to hear from a particular charity or charities. Most charities are really good about picking up those stop requests and acting on them. And we want to try and use the charity experience of doing that not to harm charity fundraising in any way because that would never ever be our intention but to find that balance between the public or members of the public being able to say actually I don't want to do this anymore charities picking up those requests respecting that and playing back to their own supporters in a way as part of the overall approach to dealing with complaints and concerns that charities do have or should have that if you really are fed up with us you know you can opt out now we don't want to overly encourage that but i think what we found and this is this is a personal view as well as a a bit of an organizational view here is that what fps has helped people do is say 
please, I want to opt out. We don't know what the reasons are and we, we, you know, that's not our business. But it's been at a reasonable level so that charities have not found FPS harming their fundraising. And arguably it's helped because you know there are people who were on your contact list who don't want to be there anymore and you don't want to waste time effort, staff resource, contacting someone who, for whatever reason, doesn't want to know anymore. You mentioned earlier about the fundraising levy, Gerald, the, the, the thing that large fundraising charities are asked to pay to fund the regulator. And you've said that it looks likely that the levy will be increased over the coming years and you're going to do a review of it. Can you talk a little bit about what that will entail and how that's going to work? Okay, early days on this yet. Um, and we are a little way off knowing what the changes may be, both in terms of the mechanics of doing those changes, as well as for, for charities that pay the levy, what the levy might look like. So with those caveats in place, because again, if we make significant changes, we will want to consult on what those are. So uh, nobody should worry that the levy is going to change immediately now. It's not. The uh, invoices for the year beginning September the 1st, 2022 have just gone out in the last week. Uh, we've got some payments in already, which is uh, very good news indeed. Yeah. Uh, and we closed out, uh, I'll just mention it whilst here, uh, we closed out the levy year just ended on August the 31st, collecting, again, collecting 98% of the amount invoiced as in the previous year. And uh having 1,971 charities paying the levy, which is almost identical to the uh, year before. I think it was 1,974 in the year before. The, num the numbers in the levy do vary each year because charities at the £100,000 uh, level will either drop uh, drop below that or some will go above it for the first time. So there's always a bit of movement uh, there, which this is, is the amount that they spend on fundraising. That's correct per year. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we're not. Uh, we'll have a look at whether that hundred thousand pounds is the right barrier, as it were, between paying a levy and having the choice to register with us for the annual fee. We need to look at that. Um, we need to look at whether the uh, levy steps that we have on the staircase are the right steps. Above all, we need to look at the levy in relation to the ambitions that we've set for ourselves in the strategic plan. We know at the moment that everyone is under financial pressure, individually, organisationally. So we bear in mind what's currently referred to as the cost of living crisis in framing all of this, because we know that fundraising charities will have service delivery pressures of their own that they have to meet. Equally, we have financial pressures of our own that we have to, to meet. And the financial projections that you see at the back of the strategic plan are based on a number of assumptions, which were good at the time we made the assumptions. But we know what inflation is at the moment. We don't, at the time that we're, we're doing this pod, uh, we don't know yet what help there may be from government across the piece over the next year or two, which may help 
uh, people understand their costs better. So with all those caveats, we need to look at the structure of the levy. I think it's right to do so after it's been in operation. This is the seventh year of the levy. We haven't made any substantial changes to it since 2016. The only changes are that charities may move from one levy step to another, up or down, according to their fundraising spend. Uh, and that's this year is no different to any other year in that regard. We know that this year, 70% are paying or being asked to pay the same levy as before. We know that 10% are being asked to pay a bit more and that 20% will be paying a bit less because their fundraising spend has dropped. If we decide that uh, we need to increase the levy, we will obviously need to set out our complete rationale for doing that, our rationale for keeping the £100,000 qualification barrier the same or making it different, up or down. We need to then say, actually, to resource the strategic plan from, for the sake of argument, 2024-25 onwards, we need to actually ask charities to contribute a bit more. Uh, and then we have to work out what the levy staircase looks like. Um, Andy and I both spend our time talking to charities, sort of behind the scenes sometimes. And I think a, a lot of those charities... Um, have lots of understanding of what the fundraising regulator is, is there to do and what they're contributing towards. There are always a few grumblers as well, and I see, I'm sure sometimes they grumble at you. I just wondered if, as you say, it's early days on the consultation and what it might even look like, but is there a, a plan for how the fundraiser might want to deal with some of those charities who need that extra level of persuasion about paying the levy and then what, what the levy will help you guys achieve as well? Very fair question, I think. Um, there are... Uh, there always have been a number of charities in the levy that haven't paid it. And sometimes they tell you they're not going to. And, and, and in a way, that's fine, because at least they tell you. I have a bigger issue with a, a relatively small number of charities who don't respond. And I wish they would, because we're here to engage with them. We did a lot of work, Andy will remember this, I guess, you know, when we were set up. Um, we did a lot of work as a, a very small team of people to engage with charities, to explain why we were here, what we were going to do, how we were going to do it, and how, above all, our aim was always to be proportionate in what we do and encourage people to pay. And I think what you've seen over the six completed years of the levy is that the proportion of charities, the proportion of income coming in from the charities in the levy has grown from something in year one where it was in the, from memory, it was about 83% of income uh, raised uh, was actually paid to the point where in the last three years, really, we've we've achieved 97, 98%. So, I, I think that is evidence, without wanting to be complacent about it, uh, that we've worked hard to persuade charities who needed persuading that they ought to come in and do the right thing. And above all, to make sure that the, that the money we raise does help us to improve the code, 
to improve the guidance that we offer alongside the code to make make sure that where the public do raise concerns with us through the casework complaint system, that we can deal with those properly, effectively and fairly, both to the member of the public and to the charity, uh, and that we can run our inquiry service so that if you know, you've got a question about the code or fundraising, we can respond to all of that. Um, that's what the money goes to. Uh, and that takes staff to run it. If you as a charity have got doubts or worries or want to talk to us about value for money, to, to put it in those terms, please get in touch. We're a regulator. So if you want to talk to us, you can do it by, you know, get in touch with us through email. Gerald, we are out of time, which is very sad because there are hundreds more things that we could and would love to ask you. But we just want to say a massive thank you for joining us and uh, thanks for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Good to, good to be here. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories, that we've spotted in the sector. Andy, you're up first. What caught your eye? Oh, yeah. Well, this time it's a world record attempt. Oh, come on. We Always all, all the big these. targets. I know. We love these in the voluntary sector. And we have a woman who is attempting to break the world record for the fastest marathon dressed as a 3D body part, brackets female. <laughs> right. I think that means a female dressed as a 3D body part, not as a 3D female body part. Anyway, um, and Sadie Smith is going to be running the London Marathon on Sunday, the 2nd of October, dressed as a brain cell. Right. Okay. This is to raise funds for Parkinson's UK. And apparently it's taken Sadie over 72 hours to make her 3D brain cell costume. Because now I know that the Guinness people are very strict about the criteria they lay down for any world record. And I yep. think this is probably going to be a new world record just based on the way the language is being used in this press release that we received about it. But they have stipulated that she, that this costume she has must hold its own shape, cover at least the length of her shoulders to knees and closely resemble a brain cell in order to comply with the record rules. She must also complete the marathon in less than four hours and 30 minutes, which is, you know, not that easy. No, it's no mean marathon time. I've done one marathon. I know you have as well, Andy, which we might get on to, but um, four hours 30 is certainly perfectly respectable. I mean, the fact that she spent 72 hours making the costume, it does feel slightly like it's a costume-making challenge with just some running as an optional <laughs> extra rather than yeah. the other way around. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I expect she's probably spent slightly longer training than she has. That's true. Well, I mean, costume. as I say, it may be that my marathon experience was slightly hindered by how little time <laughs> I thought about training. So Sadie's father, Graham, was diagnosed with Parkinson's 18 years ago. So she is raising funds for Parkinson's UK in order to raise uh, money and awareness of the complex nature of the condition. She set herself a fundraising goal of £2,100 and she's one of 200 runners who will be running the London Marathon on behalf of the charity, including its chief executive, Caroline Russell. 
I'm, I'm tempted to ask Russell if you were going to run the marathon dressed as a body part, which body part would you choose? <laughs> um, this is exactly the sort of conversation that gets me into trouble and why I shouldn't <laughs> be allowed to do it when there's recording equipment around. I have extremely long legs as it is, so I think the easiest thing would just to be kind of just to extend that and I'd just run as one absolutely enormous leg and I could sort of hop my way around the course. Um, that might be the best way. Or maybe just a femur. Yeah. You could just have a head-to-toe bone that just covers your entire I feel body. like, would people clock that it was a femur? So I feel like it'd be one of those things where you'd have to kind of explain the joke as you ran around. <laughs> so you'd be sort of stumbling around mile 18 and saying to people, I'm, I'm actually a femur, I'm actually one very long bone, <laughs> as they go past. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there is a gap in the market, certainly for the person who wants to do a marathon as 3D body part brackets male to complement the female record. Andy, are you, are you going to be up, you up for it? You want to give it a go? Do you know, I would love to, but sadly, I've had an accident. I've broken my toe. I'm yeah. out of running action at the moment. So uh, any marathon for me at, the, at this point is sadly off the agenda. You could see Andy in flip-flops around the office the other day. That's when we knew it was serious, is that he'd given up he'd given up wearing shoes and now he was letting his toes breathe for right. absolutely everybody. It's not good. Anyway, uh, what news story have you got for us, Russell? Okay, well, I know you like me talking about dogs, so I am oh, once more going to do exactly that. What, what would you say, Andy? <laughs> What's the absolute best thing you can do with a dog? Pet it? No, that's wrong. Feed it? No. I don't know, the make it bark? No, none of those things. Actually, the best thing you can do is jump off the side of a building with your dog. This is what I learned um, <laughs> earlier this week. I don't think the RSPCA would approve, would approve of that. Well, listen, they can work more closely in that case with WAGS, which is the charity for retired police dogs. Right. Um, they are £11,000 richer this week, thanks to the activity of 25 people who abseiled off the side of the Avon and Somerset Police HQ this week to raise a bit of money for the charity. That's already impressive, right? Like, I'm not brave enough to do anything like abseiling or mountain climbing or any of those sorts of things. But the pictures in the local papers showed it wasn't just the abseilers, Andy. In some cases, they had their dogs with them on their laps as they descended this building. So they were easing wow. themselves down, and they did describe one of the dogs as a veteran of these events. <laughs> so that poor guy presumably gets to the top of a building like that and thinks, oh, God, not again. What are you doing to me? But um, listen, £11,000 not to be sniffed at. Um, and extremely good stuff for them. Not at all. I mean, I'm assuming that the dogs that these people were abseiling down with were relatively small dogs. You're not going to be doing it with a Great Dane like, <laughs> tied around your knee. I mean, why would you stop though? Like, the real challenge would be, could you get a St. Bernard down the side of the building? Because at that point, I really would be thinking of sponsoring you because that's a serious achievement. Um, with or without the little thing of whiskey around his neck. You'd need it, wouldn't you, halfway? Oh, I think um, you probably would. Um, from the pictures, they were relatively small dogs. They were very, very calm and they were extremely well behaved. So again, you, it wouldn't just be the size of the dog. It'd be whether it's the sort of dog that kind of squirms out of your arms would not be suitable for this challenge. But anyway, many congratulations to them. And above all, well done to the very good boys who are being carried up and down the headquarters. We shouldn't forget the fact that these dogs might be lab sailing down the side. Or the breed might be a Dalmatian. You should see how delighted Andy looks at himself <laughs> right now. We'll be back with another episode soon, so make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Russell Hargrove. And I'm Andy Ricketts. Thank you to our guest, Gerald Oppenheim, and our producer, Aidan Lyons at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week. <laughs>